0: What is the impact that a tribal member vote has? So in Wisconsin, this past go around, we flipped the state from red to blue. But the, the margin was so slim that there were multiple recounts in some of the larger cities. But in reality, the tribal vote could have decided this particular election. I think that that's powerful.
1: This is Voting Now,
0: turning rights into reality. We are a podcast series
1: created by lawyers for everyone. We are produced by the Oregon chapter of the Federal Bar Association and the Oregon Historical Society. Our goal is to tackle the sticky questions about democracy through the lens of voting access. Welcome to our new season. Hi, I want to welcome everybody to a podcast that focuses today on native suffrage, I am your host, Molly Washington. I am a descendant of the Apache Nadee tribe on my paternal side. I'm also an attorney for over 12 years and recently became the chief operating officer for the National Association of Minority Contractors, Oregon chapter. I am pleased to introduce you to my guest today. Here I have with me, Anna V. Smith, who is a non-native journalist, assistant editor to the Indigenous Affairs desk for High Country News, which is a publication that covers the human and natural communities in the Western United States. Hi Anna, thank you for joining us today.
2: Hello, thanks for having me.
1: I also have with me today, Amanda White Eagle. Amanda is a recent candidate for office in Wisconsin's 92nd District Assembly with over 15 years experience in her tribe Ho-Chunk Nation's government. Amanda currently serves as a senior tribal council representing the tribe as an attorney. Now, before we begin, let's just talk briefly about the history of suffrage as it relates to Native people. The U.S. Constitution did recognize tribes as separate sovereign governments, but with treaties and Supreme Court decisions that simultaneously limited that sovereignty, the federal government still exerted increasing authority and control over tribes and Native people. Even though the 15th Amendment of 1870 did guarantee the right to vote for some people, Native people in the U.S. did not have that right until Congress passed the Indian Citizenship Act of 1924. Now, even with the Indian Citizenship Act, there were still many obstacles in place, both legal and illegal, that prevented Native people from voting. Under the Election Clause of the U.S. Constitution, states still had the power to prescribe the time, place, and manner of holding elections for state, local, and federal office, so many states still continued to exclude natives from the political process using a variety of tactics. There were still laws and constitutional provisions that excluded natives explicitly from voting, and those were not repealed until much, much later. Poll taxes, literacy requirements, and voter intimidation were other tactics used that effectively excluded native people from voting. Now, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was passed, which did provide some tools for native voters to assert and protect their rights to vote. The Voting Rights Act banned voting practices that resulted in denial or abridgment of the right to vote on account of race or color, and it abolished tests and devices used to limit voting, as well as making criminal the act of depriving someone of the right to vote as protected by the Act. Even with these additional protections, however, many obstacles still remain. The impacts of discrimination, lack of access to polls, mail, early voting measures, as well as inaccurate information disseminated by poll workers and other election officials, continues to act as a bar to the participation of Native American people in voting. Even recently, the Voting Rights Act itself has come under attack. So I want to start talking about the impact of the Native vote in the current election, and I'm going to go ahead and start with you, Anna. Anna, tell me this. How did the native vote impact the 2020 presidential election of Joe Biden?
2: Sure. So it's hard to, I feel like whenever are talking about these topics, to generalize in a broad sense. But if you kind of look at it from a state-by-state state perspective, and especially at the precinct level, you can really see the influence of tribal members, specifically those living on reservations, because of that precinct data. But aside from the people who are living on reservations, um, exit polls showed that 72% of Native voters in Arizona went for Joe Biden overall. And as we know, Arizona was a really important state for the electoral points. Um, Similar situations played out in other states like Nevada. And I would say that based off of the exit polls and from interviews that I did, The pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, definitely played a really huge role in that because of President Donald Trump's just absolute failure to really address pandemic relief in Indian country as a whole. And I was also going to talk about not just this election, but also a couple examples of native voting power in past elections. Um, So in 2010, for example, Senator Lisa Murkowski, who is a senator in Alaska, became only the second successful U.S. Senate candidate to be voted in on a write-in campaign and Alaska natives were a really huge part of that. I think it was like a hundred thousand votes that wrote her in. And the Alaska native population in Alaska is 17%. So definitely a large voting block there. Also Senator Heidi Heitkamp, she won her election in 2012 by a 1% margin. Uh, so again, Native voting power there, she later introduced Savannah's Act, which is meant to help with the missing and murdered Indigenous women crisis. I guess I'll just give one more example. Senator John Tester of Montana in 2018 won a really close re-election with less than 20,000 votes in his favor, and the Indigenous population of Montana is 7%, and he's also been seen as a pretty good ally of Indigenous voters in terms of legislation passed and advocating for them in Congress.
1: Thanks, Anna. You know, you brought up a really important, interesting point, which is at this moment, we're focusing on the election of Joe Biden. But like you said, there are all these instances before that where you really saw Native folks showing up at the polls and making their voices heard. But we also forget that history, too. How do we ensure as we go forward that we continue to remember the importance of the engagement of Native folks and how they have shown up in the past and have? Operated as a collective to really swing an election?
2: Yeah, so I think that there's kind of a two prong strategy that I can speak to from my perspective. One is that the media really needs to do a better job <laughs> of covering Indigenous affairs. I mean, this election, uh, you know, the meme something else went around because CNN didn't even include Indigenous people on a breakdown of voters. Um, And so that was a huge misstep.
1: Can you tell me more about what you mean by that? Is that specifically related to Native American folks not being specifically identified in the data that's being captured? What are we talking about there?
2: Yeah, so basically a lot of organizations don't follow the correct methods to gathering data. A lot of this data is self-identification. There are a lot of people who are not enrolled tribal members or actually connected with their indigenous communities um, who then just self-identify. We saw this skew data when it comes to the Washington football team and people saying that it didn't bother them, their name. And so um, those are just like a couple examples. A lot of times indigenous people are just kind of lumped together into another category and if an organization is not specifically devoted to indigenous people, they just aren't, they're just in the other category. Um, I mean, even when it comes to like city-level stuff, like police departments, they don't really keep accurate data and they certainly don't keep tribally specific data. Um, and then another another issue is that you know there's communities who are on reservations. And then there's also indigenous people who are living in the nearby urban area. They might go back and forth. Um, How do you reach urban indigenous people as well as communities on reservations? And so if you're not, again, if you're not an organization that's specifically devoted to indigenous people, they just don't do it. Uh, And so whether that's local news, national news, what have you, just doing a better job talking with Native voters, seeing what it is that they care about, what are the most pressing issues for them. Uh, And then also when it comes to voter organizations to be reaching out to Indigenous people um, and Indigenous communities on reservations and also in cities, because we know that urban Indigenous populations are, are substantial in a lot of major cities. So just kind of like the awareness and then recognizing that that power is there and then, kind of apart from that, too, like we're talking about Indigenous people as voters, but as a, Amanda will speak to you later, it's important to think of Indigenous people also as candidates. And this past election really showed that because there's a record number of Indigenous congressional members after this last election, both Democrat and Republican.
1: Thanks so much, Anna. You know, it's interesting as we're talking about the impact that Native voting. Um, What's playing in my mind is also so many of the obstacles that Native voters face when even trying to cast that ballot. Tell me about some of the things that you've seen um, around those barriers specifically.
2: Yeah, so there's definitely a long history there that I won't get into the nitty gritty of, but um, some of the ones that still come up, one is the tyranny of distance, basically the distance that some people have to go to drop off a ballot or to register to be a voter. Um, another issue is in uh, especially rural reservation communities, non-traditional mailing addresses, which means that ballots don't always end up where they're supposed to go. Somebody might be registered at multiple PO boxes because they have like multiple places where they might live. Just like getting the actual ballot is still a really substantial barrier, which is like a very like fundamental, aspect of voting right like if you don't even get the ballot then what are you supposed to do much less like you know um like in-person kind of issues like um id restrictions which is another thing like in 2016 we saw restrictive election laws in like north dakota where they just weren't accepting tribal ids at polls and so um that that happened really close to the election too. So there's just like this massive effort to get everybody the IDs that they needed um, in order to vote. And it's just kind of crazy how state and federal governments just kind of like watch this happen. And it's still an issue (laughs) after so many years. Um, But there are solutions too. Like at the state level, there's legislation that passed in Washington state called the Native American Voting Rights Act. And that provided things like... um, making a tribal government building as a ballot drop off for tribal members to go pick up their ballot from. And so kind of like place specific solutions. And there's also at the federal level, there's been congressional legislation introduced that would also be a Native American Voting Rights Act that would specifically address a lot of these issues that are unique to indigenous communities.
1: Thank you, Anna. Let's turn a little bit to the other side of the political engagement, which is candidates. And you mentioned, I think it's a good point, is thinking about Native Americans not only as voters, but as also the leaders or the representatives of their people. Amanda, thank you so much for joining us. You were a candidate for a a local office in Wisconsin. Um, tell me a little bit about that,
0: and can you specifically talk to me
1: about some of the barriers that you as a candidate face in getting support?
0: Sure. Um, well, again, thank you for asking me to join you today. It's exciting to talk about uh, running for office. Um, as one of uh, Wisconsin's Native candidates, I was really excited at the prospect of being the first Native American in Wisconsin's legislature. And although I wasn't elected into office, I feel as though I really paved the way for folks behind me, because at some point, there's going to be an Indigenous person in Wisconsin's legislature, and it's an exciting place to be. So when I think about barriers that I faced, um, I would say that they kind of fall into two categories. Uh, Barriers that I faced running for office and not really having the background of running for office, not being as involved in the Democratic Party and not really knowing what was needed. Like the first thing was trying to find 400 signatures during a pandemic um, and making sure that, you know, the travel community was really out to help. And thankfully, we have a really strong uh, Ho-Chunk community and they were really helpful in terms of getting those signatures. But additionally, I oftentimes don't think people know how much it costs to uh, launch an aggressive campaign. And so when I was told like I'd have to raise over $100,000, I laughed because it didn't seem intuitive to me that I would have to raise that much money. And in the end, I raised over $200,000. And that was with the help of tribal support, non-tribal support. And so I think just getting into the mindset of running for office was difficult as an indigenous person to ask people for money, to ask, you know, a next door neighbor saying, Hey, would you like to give $50 and be put on a mailing list so that I can show that I'm a viable candidate. Um, so that was, you know, just a little bit different because, you know, as a tribal person, it's, it, it's hard to ask for money and support in such an overt way. Oftentimes I think as a tribal person, you're taught to walk with humility and lead by example. But then on the other side, I think about challenges to participation from tribal people. So what I encountered trying to encourage tribal folks was a change in mindset. There is oftentimes in, well, that's the state government, that doesn't apply to us, we're tribal. But in reality, we're citizens of both governments. So they affect, especially in Wisconsin, which is a public law 280 state, there's multiple jurisdictions throughout the state. And so you're going to be affected as a tribal person by both the state, the federal, and the tribal governments. So trying to change that mindset. And then um, once that mindset's changed, it seems as though a sense of I don't know if you'd say shame sets in, but I was talking to elders who'd never voted in a state election before. And they're like, well, I'm over 60. How do I, how do I even do this? And if someone probably said, well, how have you never voted before? Why don't you have the right ID? Where's your utility bill? That causes a sense of shame and folks don't really want to participate. So trying to be as inclusive as possible. And the last barrier that I would see was in some sense, and I know that Anna talked a little bit about this, but voter ID laws. So in Wisconsin, you can show up day of and vote, but you need to have the right ID. You need to be able to show your residency. And when you're talking about PO boxes, and where your bills go and who's paying your bills. Because uh, sometimes there's collectivity in the bills under someone's name, but everybody just sort of puts their money towards that bill. So it's a little bit of a uphill battle. So those are, I guess, two sides of the coin that I wanted to share. There's definitely barriers for tribal people, but there's also barriers for tribal candidates.
1: Thanks, Amanda. You mentioned the process with US government that you had to get 400 signatures and folks said you've got to raise at least 100,000 in order to really have an aggressive campaign. Tell me about how the process works in your own tribe for the selection of leadership and how it may differ from what you experience in running for a US government position.
0: Right, so the ho Chunk Nation has an election ordinance And that governs how elections are held within the tribe. And I believe as of right now, you need to have like approximately 10 signatures. I mean, that's the the bare minimum. And then you also have to go through a comprehensive background check and you typically launch some type of social media campaign. Some folks invest in things like yard signs, but by and large, it's not as strict or structured as running for any type of state level. You don't have to uh, show where money is coming from. So it's it's a lot different, but this go around, the tribe has a record number of people that are running for office. Our tribe's actually in an election cycle right now. So it's a really exciting time because people are recognizing what leadership is able to accomplish on a state level, tribal level, and federal level. And Amanda,
1: you mentioned um, one of the barriers for getting support from Native community was the idea that, do tribal members believe or understand or realize the impact that state government or federal government or local government may have on them, even though they're a member of a tribe, even if they live on a reservation, even if that tribe is recognized as a sovereign nation? Um, So understanding and recognizing that, what are some of the ways to bridge the gap between participation in tribal processes and participation in U.S. government processes?
0: I think the main conduit is education, just informing tribal members of, you know, why is it that they vote in tribal elections? And our tribe for the first time is instituting an all-mail-in-ballot approach. So I I think that has a lot to do with both the pandemic as well as access. So people will be mailing in in ballots, so that's going to ease the, the process, I believe. But it's also ensuring that our leaders educate folks, and specifically tribal members, about what their vote means. What is the impact that a tribal member vote has. So in Wisconsin, this past go around, we flipped the state from red to blue, but the, the margin was so slim that there were multiple recounts in some of the larger cities. But in reality, the tribal vote could have decided this particular election, and that has an impact. And as long as that's being told to tribal members, I think that that will definitely impact how people end up at the polls in the future. So if they know that not only does my state representative affect tribal policies, it affects where I live and what sort of policies are implemented, I think that that's powerful. And as long as people have those understandings, then I think that tribes will have greater Outcomes when it comes to ensuring people are elected. But that also has to do with candidates. I think if you're talking about, you know, I mentioned earlier that I would have been the first Indigenous candidate in state assembly, representation matters, and you need to have people in place that can represent you adequately. And that comes from everything from ideals to, you know, servant-based leadership, making sure that people understand. My husband always talks about leaders eat last. You know, how is it that you should put everybody in front of you and govern with that type of humility? That's what's I think needed for tribal governance is they need to see people on a state level that are not only like them, but have those same ideals.
1: Thank you, Amanda. I wanna turn to really talking about where are we now? And where do we wanna see Native participation in the future? So we've heard about the barriers to Native Americans casting their ballots. We've heard about some of the barriers and challenges as as a political candidate being a Native American person what does that tell us about where we are currently with native suffrage? Where should we be heading? Anna, I'll start with you. And Amanda, if you'd like to weigh in on this, I'd love to hear from you.
2: I think the thing that Amanda was talking about that reminded me of this was being able to see as like a younger person or somebody who hasn't run yet, seeing somebody doing that and having role models and seeing that it's it's um, it's something that matters. And so I think that the media plays a really big role in that, um, both locally and nationally in terms of highlighting those stories. And um, I think that going forward, that is something that could definitely be improved upon, Um, uplifting, centering, and empowering Indigenous voices, both as voters, but also as candidates. Um, And then I do want to kind of amend something that I said earlier about get-out-the-vote organizers who are operating in these spaces and who need to be doing more outreach to Indigenous communities. I would also say that they need to amplify the voting organizers who are already in those spaces, who are Indigenous-run, Four Directions, Native American Rights Fund, Western Native Voice. Those are each uh, get-out-the-vote organizations that are Indigenous-centered and led. And they're doing a lot of the work. And the last election, I think, really proved out the work that they've been doing for the last few years um, in terms of Native American rights funds, so much litigation <laughs> trying to strike down these um, these state laws that are restrictive to Native voters and also getting involved in the federal level in terms of uh, legislation and getting that passed. So I think... Uh, I usually look at things as kind of like a systemic thing. And so I think in terms of the media ecosystems, publications could do a lot better job. And so could get out the vote organizers in terms of, especially non-native led organizations and uplifting the native led, get out the vote organizers. Um, One last thing that I would add to that is that we really need to improve our data when it comes to, indigenous people when it comes to voting data, when it comes to, I mean, this isn't related to the podcast, I guess, but like COVID data, there's just so much erasure in data. And it's really hard then to extrapolate out and see what's needed in some cases. And also just politicians actually responding to their constituents. I think when it comes to Senator Tester And in some cases, Senator Murkowski, too, you see them responding to their Alaska Native or Indigenous constituents. And I think sometimes the Democratic Party just kind of takes advantage of that and just kind of assumes that they will always have Native voters. But that's not the case. So I think that that should be I think that this last election should be kind of a wake up call for some people who have not been paying attention to indigenous communities and showing up they really should be because there's a lot of power there. Thanks, Anna. How about you, Amanda?
0: So in terms of native suffrage and where we should be headed, I think it's a great question that Anna really hit on the fact that the media needs to be paying attention But additionally, we need to make sure as Indigenous people that we're seen. And that comes from folks running for office. And it doesn't matter if it's school board, assembly, governor, uh, on a federal level, Congress. We need to make sure that we have Indigenous people in all areas of government. And it was really exciting, I think I saw on social media that Matt Dannenberg, who is from the Bad River Reservation in Wisconsin, or a member of the Bad River tribe rather, he is going to be working in the White House. And that's a big deal. And in Wisconsin, we had Trisha Zunker running for Congress. She's also a Ho chunk Nation tribal member. We have Sharice Davids, who's a Ho chunk Nation tribal member in Kansas. We just need to make sure that as the indigenous people that we have a part in our government. And as we have people running for office, that becomes highlighted because we have a tie to the land, we have a tie to culture, and just making sure that we are able to exercise that in our government is going to be key. Um, And I, you know, I don't want to just keep copying what Anna's saying, but like she brings up some really great points, right? The Democratic Party needs to recognize its Indigenous people and keep working with and for Indigenous people, because at some point in time, if we're just expected to show up and not getting those meaningful consultations, the meaningful talking points, uh, meaningful responses, they're going to look at the other party and say, well, maybe the Republican party can help. And I think we need to make sure that our voice is heard and whatever political party you're a part of needs to be amplifying that voice.
1: You know, that's a great point, Amanda. We saw the historic appointment of Deb Holland, member of the Pueblo tribe, to the U.S. Secretary of the Interior, which is the department that oversees the Bureau of Indian Affairs. What might that mean for Natives in politics? Do we feel like we're gonna see more Native folks in those high level positions that have authority and power and influence directly over the policies that impact our tribal nations? Do we think that Folks are going to say you've you've gotten your person in that position and now leave us alone and go away. Are we going to see the erasure continue? Um, I I was certainly excited to see her elected or appointed rather to that position, and as is always the case, I I'd like to see more. What are your thoughts on that?
0: So Deb Holland has been. trailblazer on so many levels so as the one of the first congresswomen to being a first appointee I think that she has this incredible value but we definitely don't want her to be the you know the first and only and them saying well you had that appointee back in you know 2020 or 2021 so we're just going to leave it at that She's an amazing candidate, and we know that she has historically assisted other candidates, other women who are Indigenous that are running for office. I think that Georgine Lewis will be running for her Congress position in New Mexico. She did an article in Vogue. She's highlighting all of the issues that are really important, and I think she's doing everything right. She is I would say culturally appropriately shining the light on those around her. And I think that she is, again, just a phenomenal candidate that will do a lot for Indian country. It's just making sure that the people that we have keep being on the forefront of choices.
2: Yeah. um, As a political appointee, she will be able to choose who runs her agencies underneath Interior Department. And so I think that that is something that people are really looking forward to because there could be the opportunity that you were talking about in terms of having more Indigenous people in these positions. Um, I also think that uh, she's shown to have a lot of bipartisan support. And so even though she's a Democrat representative, she has a lot of support from across the aisle as well. Um, a lot of issues when it comes to legislation in Indian country at the federal level um, needs bipartisan support in order to really get things done in a way that lasts. Um, And I also, I mean, I've just been thinking about all the things that are coming up over the next four years underneath this administration. There's going to be on the Klamath river in Northern California, the largest dam removal that's ever happened in the U S or Yurok history. And so she'll be overseeing that. And you also have, uh, in Southeast Alaska, you have the Tongass National Forest and tribes trying to be able to um, have more say in management over the Tongass National Forest. So she'll be making decisions there too. And she has a record already of um, really upholding the importance of tribal consultation uh, she has made it clear that that's really, really important. Now, we know that tribal consultation
1: is actually a legal requirement. It's a federal requirement. States have the requirement. Local public agencies often have the same requirement. But how, how is that different in terms of implementation of that requirement when you see somebody like Deb Holland fulfilling that duty?
2: Yeah, so it's really, I think, from my understanding and my reporting, it's really um, the spirit behind the policy. Uh, For example, underneath the Trump administration, a lot of the tribal consultation has been, it just goes through really fast. Tribes have said that it's not enough, that they didn't consider it consultation, They moved to um, Zoom meetings during the pandemic when tribal governments did not have time to look through all of the information that these agencies were giving them. And so that I think is a good example of kind of where we're coming from and uh, where we're going towards is uh, an interpretation of that government to government relationship that really gives the time and space That it really needs in these conversations with tribal leaders to make sure that they're actually being heard and that their concerns are being considered in these really large, like landscape level projects that fall underneath these different agencies. Thanks, Anna.
0: Did you want to add to that, Amanda, at all? I also think it's important that the government to government relationship that is honored gets involved with. At an early process, if that makes sense. So it seems as though sometimes the government already has its mind made up, and then it's like, oh, wait, we have to do a tribal consultation. So let's quick get the tribe's perspective. Versus if the tribe's brought on early on to be making this, you know, honoring the government to government relationship as it's going forward, I think it, that'll be a lot more successful. And I think Deb Holland understands that, understands. The relationship that tribes have with land and resources. And if that is adhered to, she will be far more successful when it comes to tribes because they will be a part of the process.
1: As we see uh, President Biden come into his term and see the folks that he's selecting for various appointments, um, you hope that those people also become part of a group of visionaries and representatives and people with influence and power for how he runs his own administration. And these are, as you mentioned, many, many impactful U.S. governmental decisions that directly impact Native people and tribes. So with that, um, I think we'll end the podcast today. Thank you so much for being here. really appreciate your time and your investment in Native suffrage on a personal level, as a candidate, as a reporter, as a political activist. These stories are important. They're important to our culture, to our communities, and to continue to keep Native vote at the forefront of people's minds, to battle erasure, and to continue to advocate for Native inclusion in our government in the processes and as representation. So thank you. This has been an episode of Voting Now, turning rights into reality. A new podcast series from the Oregon chapter of the Federal Bar Association in collaboration with the Oregon Historical Society. We focus on current and historical barriers to voting. Want to find out more? Hit subscribe to check out our episodes and visit our website, voting-now.com. Celia Howes is the lead host and executive producer. Brian Masters is our creative director. Miranda Schaefer is our producer. And Gabrielle Granillo is our senior editor. Special thanks to Fiona McCann.